0: Hey, this is Seth Scruggs, co-host of Rewatch. We're very excited to announce that we are going to be premiering a short film called Five Minutes. It was directed by me and it was produced and written by Zachary Vaughn. We shot it back in December and we're getting ready to release it on August 28th at 6pm. It will be premiering on YouTube as a live premiere. Uh, You can find all the information on Instagram at Productions. Following the premiere of the film, we are going to be hosting a live Q&A at 6.15, where we're going to talk about the film, and you can come out and ask us questions, and we'll be excited to answer them. August 28th at 6 p.m. with a Q&A following at 6.15, the premiere of Five Minutes, a short film by Seth Scruggs and Zachary Vaughn. Hello and welcome to Rewatch. My name is Seth Scruggs. This is the show about movies that we love and movies that we haven't seen yet each week. Uh, myself and my co host, Zachary Vaughn. Hello. We take turns picking movies that the other person hasn't seen so that we. And then we talk about them, basically. Uh, eventually, I'm going to get good at doing this intro, but uh, as of right now, I'm not. This week, Zach picked a movie, and he's going to tell us about it. This week's movie was Pan's Labyrinth. It's a Guillermo del Toro
1: movie. came out in 2006, starring Ivana Baquero, Ariadna Gill, and Sergi Lopez. Um, it's a wartime fantasy Um
0: that's a way to describe it.
1: Yeah, it it very much shifts. It it goes all over the place. Well, not all over the place. It switches back and forth between showing um the extreme innocence of Ophelia, the main character, and the extreme brutality of her stepfather, um Captain
0: Vidal. Yep. Yeah, that's a that's a good summary of the movie. Uh, I'll go ahead with my kind of first impressions of the movie. Um, I wasn't sure what this movie was for. Was kind of like... I knew going what in... What do you mean for? A, well, like, I knew that going in, it's a fantasy movie. It's something different and unique. There's, like, a weird fawn. There's the weird dude with the the eyes in his hands. Like, I knew that was there. But... I didn't know basically I knew nothing about the uh the World War II aspect of it, just because I knew basically nothing about this movie going in. And I I don't know like how I how I felt about it, if I'm honest. Like I I felt like the movie was caught in between these two things, and I wasn't really sure. I wasn't sure. Basically, like what by the time it finished, I didn't I didn't know how I could describe the movie that I had just seen, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. That's pretty much um what my first impressions were. Obviously I saw it um I had seen it before. This watch, but my first impression going into it was Oh, it's a movie about a girl who goes into this other world. There's the fawn guy. I thought the really skinny naked guy with the eye hands was the main villain. I thought it was going to be her trying to escape him yeah. as the monster throughout the entire well, thing.
0: It's funny because he's such like an icon of this movie. And really, he's not in it, and I think it's just because he's so terrifying looking that Mm -hmm. it was like, yeah, we're gonna put him in the movie, right? Yeah,
1: and he has maybe five minutes of screen time,
0: maybe, maybe. But like, I know, like on my Netflix, he is like the the little like figure that's there. Yeah, I think so. Going in, going in without any sort of knowledge of what it was, I the problem that I kept coming to in the movie was I felt like Ophelia was the main character right like I and I, and I think she is and I think that if you were going to break down the screenplay you would say Ophelia is the main character but I or like the protagonist not necessarily main character but protagonist she changes she grows I'd say she, she also might be the main character as well yeah I think you could also make that argument um but I, I couldn't I found it hard to connect because she and Vidal have kind of the same amount of screen time. And so I was trying to like track with is her story the one that's driving the theme and driving this movie forward? Or is his story the one that's driving the theme and driving the movie forward? And so it was hard to like tell. At times, like what is what, um, and I don't know how you felt about that, but like that was that was the thing that I kept coming back to is like, what is the core story of this movie? If I were going to describe this to someone, how would I describe it? And I'd say I, it's brutality and innocence. Yeah, I I think that's I I'm thinking more along the lines of like if I were asked to give a synopsis of the movie. I don't know where what I would do. Like I don't know okay. what I would say. And I think part of the problem is that. I didn't feel like. Until the end. I didn't feel like Ophelia's story. Was very. Uh, focused. Okay. In a sense. Like obviously. It, I think that her story was. Focused in that. She had a very central goal. Of. She has to like complete these three tasks in order to like be granted into the afterlife like immortalness. I got that. That makes sense to me. But in my mind, I feel like that should be like the central like purpose of the movie and where we spend most of our time. But it felt like so much of the movie was spent on her and her relationship to Vidal and her relationship to her mom and, like, her little brother. Does that make sense?
1: Yeah, I think that's where our pre- our uh, expectations for the movie come in. Um, because both of us, um, like, I didn't even know Vidal was going to be in it. Like, I had no idea he existed. <laughs> yeah, um, Or that anything directly related to World War II existed. Oh, yeah. And so, that's... I, I was also very surprised when it's about 50-50 screen time with her and Badal. Um, and I think that's just because of my expectations going into it. If I had known that it was a wartime fantasy, I probably would have been more like, oh, okay. This is this is this is what I was expecting and it delivered on that expectation.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think it definitely did deliver on that in that regard. Um I just Yeah, I think I think you're right. I think it does kind of come down to that. Even though with that I I felt like there was a disconnect between. I don't know. I felt like it was. Yeah. No. I think you're right. I don't know where I'm going with that statement. I mean, they are, they are polar opposites in almost every
1: way. Mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, and I think I stories. think the thing, I think the thing that got me, and I think the thing that I, kind of. I don't, know, I don't think struggled with is the right word, but the thing that prevented me from being so directly connected to her story and the story as a whole is that when she is not, like, with the fawn or in the labyrinth, then basically we don't see any magic at all. And I get, at the end of the movie, it's evident why that's the case because it's, it's kind of called into question did any of this really exist um or was it just a conception in her mind is is she like a crazy little child or is is this real and i definitely get that but i wanted to see and and this kind of brings in some of the stylistic questions that i have about the film in that i wanted to see the Magic be intertwined with the world of the film as a whole, and there were places where it felt like the whimsical, like the darkly whimsical nature of like Guillermo del Toro's style, was going to kind of come in, and like magic was going to be infused with the rest of the of the world, and it didn't feel like it did that you know what i mean yeah that makes sense Mm -hmm. i think um one of the possible reasons
1: for doing that is Mm -hmm. because the movie never the movie never reveals is was the magic real was it not um and i think that's intentional i think he meant to leave it ambiguous because definitely it doesn't matter if you're focusing on whether magic is real in this movie then you're missing the point which is I agree the sheer monstrosity of Vidal versus the completely blameless um Ophelia and you're you're just not you're not connecting that if you're focused on well is the magic real or not like you're just it's just completely missing you
0: yeah, definitely. I think that's I think that's major, and I think um, I think the sparse integration of magic
1: with reality in the movie is to help throw you off and to make it more ambiguous. Mm-hmm. Um, because, like, I don't know, just to throw you off, so that maybe you aren't focusing on that. You're focusing on, um the contrast between Ophelia and Vidal
0: definitely yeah I I will say that even though there were some of those like story elements that I struggled with a little bit as far as like connecting to this is this is by far one of the most effective movies I've seen like in the last really in like the last month i I say that it may not sound like a lot of a lot of time i watch a lot of movies and considering the fact that i've got nowhere else to go right now i've watched a lot of movies in the last month Mm -hmm. um but i yeah i mean i think it is one of the most uh, it is incredibly effective Mm -hmm. i found myself incredibly like tense and on the edge of my seat um which is very difficult when you're not in like a theater setting i think i don't know how you feel about that like i feel like the the more removed I am and like the smaller the screen and I I think this is just true for everyone but I'm going to talk about it more for myself because I can only speak for my own personal experiences just acknowledging acknowledging bias um I think that that is what we do we are fully aware of our biases here on rewatch um I I think that now, now I totally don't know where I'm going Oh sorry. Oh, I find I find that uh the more removed I am from the the big screen and like the smaller the screen and the more I I don't want to say comfortable but like the more like used to my setting I am I the the more removed I am from that um I've focus less and it movies tend to be less effective in that sense where it's harder to get me to be like engaged. I don't know how do you feel about that.
1: I completely agree. The first time I watched um the first time I watched Pan's Labyrinth, well, I guess was still in a home setting. Um but I guess it really depends on how you set it up. Um because the first time I watched Pan's Labyrinth I was extremely affected by it um and i watched it just the upstairs of my parents house in the dark by myself and this time i watched it it was day i was in my room the windows were open it was very bright and it didn't affect me as much but i was still able to pay uh to catch some de- to catch details that i didn't see before um but then movies like baby driver um every time i've seen baby driver it's affected me maybe not the same way but in a very powerful way um like in the theaters i came out just loving it i watched it again and i finished loving it i watched it again and i finished loving it like i just i don't think i could ever get tired of that movie and i don't think i could ever get tired i'm going into the review part already um i'll get to that but i think i think it depends on
0: how you set your scene to watch mm-hmm. the movie yeah so and this is very topical at the moment as you know obviously i've said this before we want to make evergreen content but i feel like it'd be wrong to not acknowledge like the world in which we live at the moment where movie theaters are closed and like people aren't aren't going out to see this that if you are a movie lover and you do want films to affect you then they're there's a certain way that you watch movies and how movies like impact you, I think is greatly dependent on your surroundings and like how familiar are you with the movie. So like today, um, it's my mom's birthday and we watched, uh, we watched somewhere in time at like nine in the morning because it's Saturday, we're in quarantine, we're not doing anything. And my mom wanted to see that movie. So we watched it. And for me and for like my siblings who hadn't seen it, it affected us differently. And I think part of that is, you know, it's on a, you know, it's on our TV at home, it's daylight streaming in, in our big open, well-lit family room. And, you know, but my parents who, you know, they they don't have to watch the movie to know what's going on. Like they know every moment of this film and it affected us all kind of differently. And I think think that has a role in it. And I think, you know, if uh, we watched... Pan's Labyrinth on our computer, like on our laptops, that the movie would probably be less effective. So yeah, I think I think that's something something that's interesting. Um, you know, I watched it in my room, but it was night, it was dark, I had like a lamp on and that was it. But I and I think I think it was incredibly effective. Um as far as talking about focusing on movies, I think this is an interesting one to talk about because it is foreign language at least to at least to us because we neither of us speak spanish but the movie is in spanish um so what so tell me a little bit like what is your experience with foreign language films and then like this one in particular in general i don't have a whole lot of experience
1: um mostly because they're not super um There's not a whole lot of them that gain uh, popularity in the U.S. I mean, there are a lot if you look in the right places, but as a whole, there's not that many. Um,
0: And especially acknowledging, we live in the southern United States where that is even less common. Yeah. So my main, the
1: main source of subtitled media has been. Like *Parasite*, *Pans Labyrinth*, and then um, in high school I watched uh, a lot of anime, um, which is a completely different topic. Um, but it's subtitled, and so it, that I think that has helped uh, pay attention, help me pay attention to everything as it's going on. Um, but it's I've. I used to very much dislike watching subtitled content because it did feel distracting. Um, And my entitled American self was like, why can't they do an English version? Um, (laughs) But now I've gotten to the point where I really appreciate um, if it's good, if it's, if it's a good movie, if it's a bad movie, it's just a bad movie. It doesn't matter if it's subbed or in English, but um, I've grown to really appreciate Movies told in their language, um, like Parasite, I wish I, I spoke Korean so I could have understood a lot more of the context, but mm-hmm. it wouldn't have been the same movie if it was in English. Um, yep. And I think this movie specifically, um, because of the childlike innocence of it, would have lost a lot if it had been translated to English.
0: Yeah, I agree. I think, um, yeah, like a couple of things on that. So this is the second foreign language film that we've talked about on this podcast, which is cool um, that we've had the chance to do that. And I I agree with what you're saying. Like, I think that there's something that you lose something in the translation of it because we are then acutely aware that this is not Like we know that it's being translated for us in that content context, if you know what I mean. Like if I'm watching a German in a World War II film and they're speaking English, but it's a film about Germans, I am aware they are not German, or they are Germans, and they're speaking my language for me. Like it is has been made for like someone like me. That reminds me of another foreign language sub that I saw, which was mm-hmm. downfall,
1: which is a great movie. gotcha just a side note um, <laughs> one thing uh, my roommate pointed out um, he knows a little bit of Spanish or he looked it or he looked it up either way he he knew this bit of information um, when Captain Vidal uh, greets um, Ophelia Ophelia and her mother when they arrive at the what is it, Outpost, I guess? Mm-hmm. He uses, the article he uses, um, he says, I think he says, Bienvenidos. Mm-hmm. But Welcome. The, yeah. But there's, like, uh, because Spanish is more complex um, in ways, English is ridiculously complex in ways that are mm-hmm. irrational. Um, because Spanish is more specific in um, its conjugation and all that grammar. You there's like there's at least two if not three and I'm I'm not a linguist so forgive me if I'm getting this wrong. <laughs> Basically, there are gendered ways gendered yes, words and he used the greeting that says he is talking to a male. He and so my roommate pointed out he is not greeting his wife, he is greeting his son his unborn son. And I think that shows a lot. I mean, that's one thing that you don't get from watching the sub. Um, No, yeah, definitely. And a piece of context that makes me wonder just how much
0: other powerful subtleties I'm missing Mm -hmm. without knowing the language. Yeah, and, and I think it goes back, you know, hearing that in our in its original language opens up those nuances that we don't get. So like going back to the example of like a German in a World War II film that's speaking English, English, we speak a certain way, like American English, British English, whatever, you speak a certain way that will, there are nuances in that like how I say things are nuanced and when I write I'm writing for an American voice like if I'm writing a film then I will write for an American voice and it will be nuanced in that way and the actor will bring to it something because they speak in that language whereas if you're you know in Spanish you're able to capture the nuances of these people so the story takes place Pan's Labyrinth takes place in Spain and because it's in spanish it opens itself up to all of these nuances like that that would have been evident for those people like vidal as a spanish man would have spoken in spanish like that and it's able to capture his character more in a more complex and nuanced way than it would if he had just said welcome in english you know, we would have other ways of indicating those kinds of things. Yeah, but I'm trying to think of but, what Yeah, I mean probably in, a... in I guess some way of like body probably... language or yeah, like he eye contact, that kind of thing. Like
1: he looks at her belly instead of looking at her when he says
0: welcome. Yeah. Yeah. So so I think that we lose that, you know, and there's just being able to capture the culture in the way that the culture is expressed is very, very important. Um, and I and I think really effective. Yeah, another cool thing about the subtitles
1: um, are that Guillermo del Toro subtitled it himself. He didn't oh, want anybody else to do it, which is cool to me because it means
0: it says what he wanted it to say and how he wanted it to be translated. Going back to the nuances in that if there's something that is in the Spanish that doesn't quite translate to English because that's how words work then you you can capture that nuance a little bit more as it as it translates back um to to really tell your audience what you want to say i think then on top of like the like philosophical level of that there's a there's a practical level to subtitled films in that you have to be watching if you're not a you know, if you don't speak that language. Because, you know, if I'm watching a movie and it's English language and I know, you know, I can hear every single word and I know what they mean as they're saying it to me, I can look at my phone, I can be talking and still kinda know what's happening. But if I'm watching a foreign language film and I'm and i want to understand the story i have to be honed into the screen yeah so uh i think i think that's really this it that's obviously like very just m- much more like a practical like here's how it works thing uh but i think it's an important thing and i think that it goes back to really drawing you in as a as a viewer what what was one of your favorite things in this rewatch of the film that you picked up on or that you saw that maybe you didn't the first time that really just made your viewing experience better?
1: Um, One of the first, let's see, um, one of the first scenes that uh, Mercedes is in, she is with um, Vidal in his war room and she's, openly looking at the table that he's planning his moves on and um, it's very quickly revealed that she to us, not to Vidal, that she is helping the rebels in the area, the guerrillas, and that was just a small detail that I noticed this time that I didn't notice last time um, because like as far as he knows, there's no reason to suspect her. And he continues like even when he finds somebody on the inside helped them. He then finds out that the doctor was also helping them because they were both. And so that I think uh, relieves suspicion from her again, which she then ruins by stabbing him.
0: But uh-huh. um yeah, it's funny. It's one of those things that I always notice in like war movies or like plotting villain movies. They always have like a servant that they will say anything in front of. Mm-hmm. And I always like I'm thinking like, really you're going to say that with like someone in the room that could just go do whatever they want with that information? And that's exactly what happens in this movie. So I thought I thought that was that was funny. Um, were there any parts that just really stuck out to you from both that was just like, this is, this is my favorite thing? I think, I
1: I don't know if it was my favorite on the first time watching it, but it's my favorite scene now. And it's, it's not, it's not a, an uplifting scene, but (laughs) it's the, it's, um, the, uh, Vidal and his troops have captured... The stutterer, and he's in he's in the the barn, and he goes up to him and he says, "If you can count to three without stuttering, I will let you go." Mm-hmm. And just the intensity that the guy tries to count to three without stuttering mm-hmm. is so amazing. Like I, yep. I've I've never seen anybody do something that to most people is so simple mm-hmm. and takes so much effort and concentration and be so devastated when it didn't work.
0: Oh yeah. Yeah, I thought that scene was fantastic. It reminded me a little bit, have you seen Inglorious Bastards? I have yeah so that it kind of reminded me in a way of that opening scene with Christoph Waltz and the other dude I don't know his name where it's just this long tense interrogation and it kind of reminded me a little bit of that um and obviously there's just general comparisons because they're both World War II films so that's just like a thing but that that was that was something that kind of struck me about that. I was like, "Oh, that's that's really really interesting that connection." Um yeah, I there there is a lot in the film that I really enjoyed. I loved the I loved the design of the fawn. Oh, yeah. I loved the fact that he didn't look, you know, he didn't look like Mr. Tumminess. He Guillermo del Toro is a very cool thing with especially like the monster characters in this movie, that they do not look real. And it you're not like they don't look even like real. If they did exist, this is what they'd look like. They have a very specific look. And this kind of goes into a little bit of what I kinda st- like took issue with in the film on like a practical like filmmaking craft level was there were some parts where like this is like no building looks like that or no but like it, it could in this universe so like um uh, Vidal has this like room that has all these gears and looks like the inside of a clock and it's meant to kind of symbolize his character and his obsession with his clock which is obs- his obsession with dying like that kind of thing but it doesn't look like a real room in this house but if it, if this is if that was like the world and everything kind of looked like that i think i could buy into that and there are a couple like the room that ophelia stays in has like these really weird shaped windows and like and that's cool, and I love that kind of production design. I think that's great. But then other places looked like absurdly real compared to those. And so I, I felt like the film was trying to walk this thin line of real and magical realism and just totally magic out there. And I felt like at times it didn't quite balance it as well. Um, so I love the design of the fawn, and I wished that the rest of the world felt that dark, whimsical look. if that makes sense, yeah, I mean that that goes very well with
1: the contrasting of the characters,
0: yeah, I agree. I think that, yeah, I just I felt like that look should have been kind of perpetuated through the whole movie i'm I'm reminded of like Tim Burton where everything in this world just is like elevated and looks different. And and I wished that and, and yeah, it goes back to wanting the magic in the real world to be a little bit more entwined, I think. I just I wish that everything felt that elevated. I think that would have I I think what I was missing was the a lot of like the like the uh cinematography and the editing and the characters are very immersive. And I wanted the production design to like match that. And I, I felt like every time that I was like settling into this is what the world looks like and what it is, I um I got ripped out again. And then I'd settle in and then I'd get ripped out again. And so I felt like I feel like that was that was kind of my hang up there, if that makes sense. I loved a lot of the design of the monsters. I loved a lot of the characters. But that, that one little thing just kind of hung me up. Uh, especially for a director who is like known for production design like that. Um, I would have loved to see it throughout the whole thing. Um, I will say that one of the things that I loved, as far as production design goes. Is the mixture of the CGI and practical effects. I thought the CGI looks great. I mean, for 2006, especially, this looks great. I, I guess
1: for, I guess for 2006, yes, it looked good. <laughs> so you, it was. You don't. It agreeing? was a little rough when I was watching it. Um, mainly, um. The main thing that was just, I mean, it makes sense that it wouldn't be practical, but um, the afterlife was very, mm-hmm. it felt very, I don't know, it, it, it didn't feel well melded. It looked
0: very glossy. Yeah. Um, and, and I think that was, that was probably the only thing that I didn't love about the special effects is that a lot of them looked very glossy and very not real. Um, like everything looked a little like too smooth and shiny. Um, even the fairies at some points, but I loved that where practical effects could be used, there were practical effects. Like I loved the that the toad was practical. I loved that the fawn was mostly practical. I loved that. I thought that was fantastic. Um, and I just I I think that was such a good touch. Um, because it it just it again, it, like, elevates the film that much more, that if those things feel real. Rather than, and her, and because those are real, this eight-year-old girl, I assume eight, nine, ten, something like that, her reactions are that much better because she can actually interact she can actually see this really gross toad. She can actually see this fawn. I think that's so so effective. Yeah, she's not just looking at a person in a green suit. Mm-hmm. Or nothing a, at all. Yeah, yeah. You know, I think one of the things that you see in a lot of movies is it looks like a person is like looking past what they're supposed to be looking at because there's nothing there you know they have to they have to look directly you know they have to look somewhere and i think that happens a little bit but what's so great about the physical effects is that she is looking directly at the vaughn every single time that she sees him and i i love that i think that's great i do think it's interesting that and this is kind of out there but like out of left field but like uh pan is not actually in the film like the god pan right it's it's just a fawn and so and the spanish title is just the labyrinth of the fawn not pan's labyrinth because uh pan is actually a really like sexual story like the god pan and gamble del Toro was like no um we're not gonna we're not gonna have a really sexual story starring an 11 year old girl <laughs> uh i want you to speculate for me uh was the was the fawn real was uh she actually the the princess and did she actually go and become like the immortal princess in the afterlife i mean ultimately
1: i i'm gonna say yes because I partially like there there's absolutely no actual evidence. There's no evidence for anything being real in any movie. Like they could throw in a a clip at the end of them waking up from a dream and negate anything. Um I'm gonna say yeah, the font's real. Everything's real.
0: Yeah. I think that the like inner child in me wants that to be real very badly, it's like like I want Narnia to be real. I want this pawn to be real. I want I want that. Like I want to be able to just say the kid was right because the kid is always right, and it, that that's it. Like they're they're good.
1: Yeah, I think if there had been a scene where somebody else interacts with the book, that would have sealed everything that everything was real because the like the book may the book itself may or may not be real we don't know but if it is real then that me like then that even if nobody else reads it that settle that would settle it because how else did she get the book
0: yeah and and i think the film is very careful in not allowing you know allowing that to be seen and you know, and at the end, and I think what what's interesting is that there's one shot at the end where Vidal looks at her and sees where she's talking to the fawn and doesn't see the fawn, and we see it from his perspective and I think if that shot isn't if that shot isn't in the movie, there's no question the fawn is real, all of this is real. Mm-hmm. I think the fact that that shot is in there. Now the whole film is in question, which is interesting. Which is, it, I think, it shows the power of like a single shot. Like a right. single shot is so powerful in this film. So, how would you rate this movie? Ooh.
1: Um, between a four and a half and a five. Okay. Okay. Either one of those somewhere what between. It,
0: them what is like the standout element we've talked about a lot but, like the standout element in this film for you
1: to me it's contrast between um between innocence and evil it's
0: so, like the the thematic element of the film yeah it's
1: yeah monstrosity versus a complete innocent blameless child cool i
0: like that i gave it like a three three and a half i think uh for me like the fact that i couldn't i never felt really settled in the movie um i never felt really secure in where the like the world of the film um and that just stopped me from enjoying it as much as i did like i said really effective filmmaking but that that just stopped me from enjoying it quite as much uh so would you rewatch it again Absolutely. Yeah. Cool. I I think I would. I think that I would watch it again. I think that it would be in different circumstances, obviously. Um, but I think that I think that I would I would probably see this movie again. So let's do some recommendations. Why don't you recommend something for us? Oh Zach? gosh. Oh, I I have a
1: great recommendation. Um, okay. I've been watching Middle Ditch and Schwartz on Netflix. It is long form improv from um I don't know their first names, but they are uh one of them is from one of them was in Parks and Rec and the other what is
0: in um Silicon Valley. Yeah. It is uh, Ben Schwartz, Ben Schwartz, Tom Middleditch. Yes. It is incredible. If you if you like um
1: improv shows like Whose Line Is It Anyway, um or other in-person live improv shows, this show is incredible because they, it's two guys doing an hour, 45 minutes-ish, of telling a story completely unscripted and they're all of the characters and it's just wow. amazing it's only it's only 3 routines which is disappointing but also understandable because oh my gosh that is a lot to do um yeah. but um yeah
0: it's it's amazing yeah you might also know Ben Schwartz as the voice of Sonic in the new Sonic the Hedgehog movie uh Tom Middleditch is also the or he was at one point the spokesperson for Verizon. So there you go. That that's that's another like pop culture thing that they're a part of. They're they're interesting because they both are kind of like that guy in a lot of stuff. Um so I, I'm excited. I, I haven't seen the show yet, so I will I will have to check that out. Uh, my suggestion or recommendation is gonna be uh, I'm gonna say Aladdin uh the animated aladdin it's on disney plus uh i watched it uh a week ago i guess now uh with my fiance uh don't watch the 2019 aladdin um but, but do watch the 1992 animated aladdin uh that is that is my suggestion really my recommendation is not so much watch animated aladdin it's more just don't watch live-action Aladdin (laughs) and maybe maybe we'll do have you seen live-action Aladdin no maybe maybe we'll do a whole like episode on that at some point um because I I would I would love to just talk about that with you and we can just talk about that movie for like an hour um I'm realizing that this show is turning from me like making you watch my favorite movies to me, just like making you watch movies that I know that I would not get you to watch otherwise yeah, and i'm still I'm still making you watch my favorites <laughs> well, cool, and that provides a great segue into discussing uh what we're going to talk about next week on the show, which is when Harry met Sally, it is written by Nora Ephron, directed by Rob Reiner. It stars Billy Crystal and Meg Ryan and just that is the most incredibly 80s like list of names I think I could have read together but uh it's a great film it's a great time it's I, I I don't know if it's one of my favorites but it's definitely up there uh so we'll be we'll be watching that next week and hope that you will join us hey thank you for listening to this episode of rewatch if you liked it uh, follow us on spotify and and or wherever you get your podcasts it'd be great if you left us a review you can uh, choose five stars very easily um, and that is how many you should give us um, and you can write a review that, that helps us out a lot it also helps us out a lot if you follow us you can follow me on instagram at seth scruggs you can follow zach on instagram and twitter at bashful coyote and you can follow us and everything that we do at Instagram uh, or on Instagram at MarkspotsTheXDotProductions. We post about what we've seen, what we've watched, um, and also like what we're making. Uh, we do other stuff other than this podcast, uh, like short films and video projects and things. So you can check all that stuff out on that Instagram page as well. I think that's everything. Zach, I'll see you next week. Alright, bye.